listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 27 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I have an interview with Jamie Lee Roy, whose daughter River died after being born prematurely following a very difficult pregnancy, an emergency C-section, which Jamie Lee wasn't sure either her baby or her wife would survive. What Jamie Lee and her wife Lisa went through is definitely one of the most traumatic stories that I've featured on the podcast. So a little bit of an advanced warning, this one is definitely um, an emotional roller coaster. In Jamie Lee's words, pretty much everything that could go wrong did. We also talk a bit about the stark contrast between the support they received at the hospital, which sounded amazing, and perhaps that drop-off in support when they got home. And in particular, Jamie Lee's struggles with coming to terms with the trauma she experienced as the non-birth mother during and after River's birth. I know many of you, like me, probably know very little about the choices same-sex couples make when they decide they want to start a family. Um, So if you want to inform yourself and become better informed on this, Jess at The Legacy of Leo has a really good question and answer post on her website about her experiences that I will link to in the show notes. I think it's probably those kind of questions that you have in your head that you feel a bit awkward asking people. <laughs> and she she does a very good job of answering them and, you know, putting things down in black and white and also talking a bit about the legalities in the UK, at least in terms of um having a child who has two mothers. Before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to share a bit of news from the US about a bill that was passed last week in the New York State Assembly and Senate to ensure that hospitals care for mothers in preterm labour and provide care for high-risk pregnancies. The bill was raised by Assembly member Rodney Bichot and is named in memory of her son, Jonah Bichot Cowan, who died after being born prematurely in 2016. And her story is, well, it's really shocking. So despite being told that she was in a high-risk situation that could be fatal to her and her baby when she presented at the hospital already in labour, she was denied care and forcefully released from the hospital because of a policy that stated insurance would not cover care before 23 weeks of pregnancy. And she was just over 22 weeks at the time. But there is another dimension to her experience, which is that she is a black mother. And as I've mentioned before on the podcast and we discussed in episode 25, there are significant racial disparities when it comes to maternal health, risk and care between white women and black and brown women. So I wanted to mention this firstly, because I think it's an amazing legacy that this woman has created for her son. And it will be hugely beneficial to, you know, many women in New York State who 
are unfortunate enough to experience premature labour or who have high-risk pregnancies. But also because it's just another example of some of the additional challenges that black women face on their journey to motherhood. And while I know our healthcare system in the UK is a lot different to that in the US, um, I'm sure that some of those racial disparities in terms of how women are treated during pregnancy um, and birth and after birth still exist in the UK and in other countries. Um, I will put a link in the show notes so you can find out a little bit more about that. So today's episode is is quite a long one, but it's really good. I really enjoyed chatting to Jamie Lee, and I really appreciate her coming onto the podcast all the way from Australia to talk about River. So let's get into it. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Jamie Lee Roy, who's all, coming all the way from Australia. It's my first Australian guest. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jamie Lee. And would you like to start by introducing yourself and your family? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me, um, for starters. Um, yeah, so I'm Jamie Lee. Uh, my wife, Lisa, and I have a beautiful little daughter named River. Um, River was born at 27 weeks and two days. And she died the day after she was born. Um, Yeah, we've also got two little dogs, Levi and Frankie, who are the lights of our life. Um, Yeah, so that's us. We're just a little family and unfortunately someone's missing from it. Yeah. And, you know, I think most people listening to this podcast can can resonate with that feeling. So let's start by going back to the beginning of your journey with River. And when did you and Lisa first start thinking about starting a family? Um, well, I, before we met, I wanted kids. Lisa didn't want kids. Um, she'd worked in daycare for like a very long time and was totally disinterested in children. Um, but about probably three or four weeks maybe into our relationship, we were talking about kids and she dropped the, oh, no, I never want kids. And I sort of thought, oh, dear, like, what are we going to do now? And then we sort of talked about it and I was like, oh, no, you know, maybe I don't need kids, whatever, that's fine. And then a few weeks later we were actually going away for the weekend and we were driving along in the car and she just turned to me and said, oh, actually, no, I think I do want to have kids with you. And I was like, thank goodness. That's wonderful. So, yeah, pretty early on we kind of decided that kids were definitely on the cards for us. Um, Lisa has uterine fibroids, which she had known about, but we didn't fully grasp how that would complicate pregnancy in any way. Um, what Can you just explain yeah, so what so my understanding is? is it's basically a tumour, um, non-cancerous, A lot of women have them. They're extremely common. Most don't find out they have them until they're pregnant and they'll go for a scan or something and it will appear on the scan. Basically, it's a tumour. They grow in the uterus, in the lining, in the muscle, in all different areas and depending on where they are sort of decides what complications they might cause. Um, Yeah, so we knew Lisa had them. We went and saw a doctor. I think she was having a bit of pain and we went and saw a doctor in Townsville where we used to be living. And a few weeks later we saw a specialist and she basically said, 
don't even try, have a hysterectomy, it's not going to happen, and then pointed at me and said, looks like you'll have to carry. And we were quite shocked because it wasn't, yeah, it was wow, really. that attitude. Yeah, it wasn't. As well. Right. And we were devastated. Like we walked into the appointment thinking, oh, you know, this won't be that bad. We weren't expecting anything like that. And, yeah, sort of left and just were in complete shock. So then we sort of, I don't know, I guess we didn't really do much with that information at the time. And then fast forward a little bit, we moved down to the Central Coast where we live now, um, where Lisa's family are, and we went and saw a GP down here. We were really lucky. As soon as we moved down, we found a really good doctor. He practised as an obstetrician for years and years, so he knows everything about everything, basically. Um, So we sort of went in, he sent her for a scan, he saw the results and he said, you know what, you do have fibroids. Yes, they're big. Yes, you've got lots of them, but you should try anyway because a lot of women with fibroids have very normal healthy pregnancies. You don't know until you try sort of thing. So with that information, we decided that we would try and we found a donor. Um, Luckily and very surprisingly to all of us, we fell pregnant first try, which was a huge shock. Yeah, because we'd sort of prepared for, you know, this could take 12 months, this could take years, like it might not happen at all. And with all the news we'd already received, we sort of thought this is probably not going to happen. But, yeah, so we fell pregnant first go, which was a huge shock. Um, Well, it was actually quite funny. We were babysitting our niece, um, Lisa's brother's daughter, and we woke up really early in the morning because it was like test day. And we only had, I think we only had one test at home because we weren't expecting a positive. And it was like 5 a.m. or something. The niece was still asleep. We didn't, she was very small, like a couple of months old. Did the positive and I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like I don't, I'm excited, but like I'm not, we were very unsure. And then I had to wait until 7 a.m. to drive to the grocery store to get more tests. So then at 7 o'clock, I'd bought like six different tests, go home, positive, 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 and we just went, what? Like it was a complete shock. Keep going. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think even when obviously it's planned and you this is what you want, but there's still that, oh, my goodness, this is a reality. Yeah, when- there was a massive contrast. We thought if this happens at all, it'll take a long time. So then to get an instant positive test was just a complete shock it was so exciting like the best most exciting thing ever but yeah we just for some reason couldn't believe it but yeah then we went and got the um, blood test at the GP and when we arrived to get our test because our doctor is the cutest person ever we arrived and he called us to the room and as he opened the door he said he looked at us and he said why don't the three of you take a seat and that was, as soon as he said it, I just was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is the best. So, yeah, he was, we were so excited. He was so excited. Yeah, so it was a really great. That's amazing. Great outcome. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And how did Lisa's pregnancy go? Um, so the first 13 weeks were pretty uneventful, very just normal. Scans were all great. Everything was great. She had a bit of morning sickness, but nothing too out of the ordinary. And then at 13 weeks, um, we were at home one night and she just, we were sitting on the lounge chair and Lisa sort of said, oh, something's happened, something's a bit odd. 
and went to the bathroom and she, we didn't realise at the time, but she'd lost all of her amniotic fluid. So essentially her waters had broken. So mm-hmm. obviously having never been pregnant before, um, we kind of were a bit confused. We're like, what is this? Don't understand. It didn't smell like urine or anything. So we were just very confused. And I guess it doesn't cross your mind that your waters could break at that stage. Like it's just not something you've been... No, not about. at all. And it was because it, it was about 13 weeks, maybe four or five days. So we'd only just announced about a week prior. So we were in the safe zone. So passing that 12 weeks, we're like, yeah, yeah. sweet, baby's coming. Everything's great. Like just totally oblivious to all the things that can go wrong. So, yeah. She lost her fluid, but we didn't realise. And I called about maybe four or five different phone numbers we'd been given, and every single one of them, like midwives, doctors, whoever else answered the phone, all just said, oh, no, that's totally fine, it's normal, don't stress, very, very kind of just brushing it off. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. And I thought it was a bit strange, but just kind of trusted the information that we'd been given. And then it was about a week later, maybe a couple of days past a week, um, Lisa, I'd actually just had a breast reduction. So I was at home like two days post-operation in a lot of pain. I woke up one morning and Lisa was in a lot of pain and I said, oh, what's wrong? And she's like, I haven't slept all night. I mean, really, I'm not having a good time. So I called her parents who lived five minutes away. And they took her to our little local hospital and they did a scan, saw that there was no fluid. Lisa's dad called me and said, something's wrong. I said, great, come and get me. I need to be with Lisa. And it was sort of because it's a very small hospital. They're not very well equipped for serious kinds of things. Um, And they basically said, there's no fluid um, we need to transfer you to another hospital. So we went to a slightly bigger local hospital and this took like all day. There was absolutely no rush, which was extremely frustrating. And when we got to that second hospital, we were ushered into this back corner room and I immediately went, this is weird. Like why are they putting us in this far corner away from everyone else? And my, like I immediately just went, something's not great. And straight away saw a doctor, which, again, was very out of the ordinary because usually you're waiting quite a while at a public hospital. And the doctor came in and did a swab test to determine if um, Lisa's waters had broken. So they did the swab test and the doctor said, oh, no, it's, your waters aren't broken. It's like a negative. But it was quite clear that they had. And she said, oh, you know, tests aren't always accurate. And I'm like... Thinking, where's all the fluid gone then <laughs> you know but where is like... it yeah it can't it didn't just disappear but yeah so she kind of there were two doctors two obstetricians and one of them was sort of just in the background taking notes and stuff and so Lisa and I still didn't really have a clue what was happening and then she kind of the it was a really the room was really dark and she sort of hopped down onto her niche so she was at our level like on the bed and she just, um, this is really hard, she just basically said to us, yeah, 
your baby's gone, you're going to lose your baby, um, you know, the chances of you going into labour, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was something like 50% of early membrane ruptures will result in you going into labour within 24 to 48 hours. And obviously being at that gestation, there was nothing they could do. So that was terrible. And, again, like it was a complete shock, complete shock. And, yeah, she sort of just said, you know, you've got a few options. You can, and it was quite negative. Everything up until then was quite negative. There was no... No, there's a chance. There was no, no hope like that. No, yeah. none at all. And yeah, she basically said, "These are your two options. You either stay here and we induce, or you go home and miscarriage naturally." And I just, my brain just went, "What? Like, this can't possibly be happening." And yeah, and and given because obviously we'll we'll come on to later, but you know River carried on, you know yeah. she survived quite a long, a long time, time after that, and they didn't even kind of mention that that was a possibility. No. It was like, well, this is this is yeah. this is what's going to happen. Yeah. So basically, the impression we were left with, she sort of said she was very she was a lovely doctor, very kind, very everything. Yeah. Said you know these are the things, and then we both just immediately broke down and. She sort of sat there for a minute and we cried and took a breath and she kind of pulled me aside and said, I, like we straight away said we're not inducing, that's not happening. She said that's fine and then she pulled me aside and explained what would happen when we were at home when Lisa would go into labour and she sort of gave me a quick... So she didn't explain that to No, she sort of, of I think because it was quite a, um, I don't know, the... We were all perfectly fine, sort of sitting in there one minute, a bit stressed. Next minute she's dropped that huge bomb and it was very emotional and it was just a nightmare. And, um, yeah, she sort of just pulled me aside really quick and just said, you know, when you go home this is what's going to happen. As soon as that happens, come straight back to the hospital. And then she said, you know, I'll give you five minutes and when you're ready for us to come back in just let us know. We would just kind of like, okay, Bye. And then so we were just left there just bawling our eyes out like a pair of us were just complete wrecks. And the impression we were left with was that our baby was dead essentially and if not now then very soon to the point that I immediately because we'd been keeping our families up to date like our parents and I immediately called my mum and I just broke down and I just said, you know, baby's gone, this is it, this is what we've been told, hung up, Lisa called her parents, same thing. And, yeah, then we were kind of just left in this room going, what just happened? Like just complete and utter. And, yeah, what what do we do now? Like yeah. what and happens now almost, yeah. I think the fact that the doctors didn't give us any sort of hope at all, it just left us thinking, well, this is it. It's done now, like end of story. And, um, yeah, I think the doctors came back in after and, said something about, oh, you know, we'll give you a referral to a specialist down in Sydney, which is about an hour and a half away. That's the biggest sort of major hospital near us. So she said, you know, we'll give you a referral and when you get down there they'll do some further testing and they'll do an amniocentesis. And, again, at the time I had no idea what that was. What What is that? <laughs> so it's a basically it's a test they'll do by testing the amniotic fluid. Okay. But she'd lost her amniotic fluid. Yeah. So at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't even know what that was at the time. 
but yeah, thinking about it now, I think they kind of almost didn't know what to say either. Like they just kind of wanted to pass us on to someone else who could deal with it or whatever. But yeah, so we got a referral, ended up um, just kind of waiting for that next appointment. But between that first doctor saying, your baby's gone, about a week later, she had another really bad sort of attack of pain. And we were at home at the time and we she thought it was heartburn. So I called again, called some phone number they'd given us and I explained everything that had happened and they said, you know what, just go straight to a hospital. And I didn't want to go to either of those hospitals. I just thought, why? It's like they didn't want to deal with us. And for that that time you've been at home, I mean, you must have been kind of in limbo, just waiting for this miscarriage, which you've told is going to be happening, to happen. I mean, how awful. Yeah. It's been terribly hard. Very difficult. And because I just had surgery, I couldn't drive. So we were staying at Lisa's parents' house, which was amazing to be somewhere where we could both be looked after because we both needed looking after which is quite strange to go from being just adults looking after ourselves to then we had to be looked mm-hmm. after and driven everywhere and all that kind of thing. And, yeah, so we sort of sat at home for about a week just Googling, researching everything we could. Um, so it's called when your membranes rupture early, it's called P-PROM or PROM. So depending on how early it happens, P-PROM is pre-premature rupture of membranes or premature rupture of membranes. But because it was so early in the pregnancy, it was they, everyone called it P-PROM. So, you know, we're Googling that, we're finding Facebook groups, we're finding everything we can. And there were quite a few people in there saying, oh, you know, we presented, they told us our membranes had ruptured, we induced, baby died, we went home. But then there were a lot of other people who were like, you know what, we didn't do anything. We just went home, waited it out, and here's my baby. So we went from sitting at the hospital being told this is it to Googling a week later some random lady on Facebook who finished her whole pregnancy and came home with a baby and everything was fine. So that was obviously great that we didn't make a split second decision because, yeah, then we had sort of this feeling of hope that maybe everything would be fine. But, yeah, so we ended up back at the hospital again and had another massive attack of pain and that was horrendous and again just ended up getting transferred to the other hospital went home the next day and sort of we're just sitting around waiting for our specialist appointment which was really hard that period of waiting was so difficult Mm. Um, and then eventually we had our specialist appointment which was horrific it was For starters, they were running hours late, which obviously they can't do anything about that. We couldn't do anything about it. We were so anxious and so nervous, Mm -hmm. sitting in this waiting room, eventually had a scan, which was really thorough, which made us feel, you know, maybe we are in the right place now. They're spending a lot longer doing this scan, trying to find everything they can. And then we went and saw the specialist who is an amazing woman. She is so intelligent but also so empathetic which we hadn't experienced yet and aside from the day River died I think 
that first specialist appointment was probably the worst day. It was, you know, our baby was still alive, but we got every piece of information. We got every option. We got so much information. We were sort of bombarded, but also really thankful to have someone give us all of that information. And we just immediately trusted our specialist. There was no, we weren't second guessing anything. We weren't sitting there thinking, oh, are you sure? Like, are we going to go home and Google and find something else? There was none of that. We just Mm -hmm. felt so comfortable, but also so uncomfortable. But it was exactly where we needed to be, which was Mm -hmm. a huge blessing. We didn't realise it at the time, I don't think. But looking back now, if we had have maybe gotten another doctor who had a different opinion, we might have ended up somewhere totally different. So that was amazing. We got a lot of information that was very negative, very much was if you make it to next week, you might have a better chance. If you make it to the week after, you might have a better chance. But overall it was really poor prognosis. There was no fluid. It hadn't. So sometimes when the amniotic sac ruptures, it can sort of connect itself back up again, but that didn't happen. So there was the fluid wasn't staying in the sac, essentially. So that means there's no fluid, baby can't practice breathing, lungs aren't being developed. So if the baby does make it to a viable stage, the lungs will be so underdeveloped that their chance of survival is almost nothing. So that's kind of the information we got. So we, it just kind of kept getting worse. There was never any moment where we went, oh, okay, this is all just some big mistake. This isn't just a complete nightmare. And it was really horrible because even up until then, we didn't fully grasp the situation, I don't think. We hadn't really accepted that, oh, this could all actually go terribly wrong. We still were just naive, I guess. And I think part of you doesn't want, there is part of you that cannot believe that until someone tells you definitively as well. It's like, you know, for example, so my daughter was stillborn I remember you know we went into the hospital and you know the the midwife put the Doppler on my stomach and couldn't find a heartbeat and you know that the thing they do is they're always reassuring because it has to be a doctor who kind of tells you so like oh baby's probably just in the wrong position blah 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 and you know and I kind of knew something was wrong but at the same point I just I think part of you is just in shock and just cannot accept that until someone definitively says those words. Yeah, or until we saw it for our own eyes. Yeah, I just, yeah. it was just such a strange, I mean, it was horrendous at the time. It was, I've never cried so much up until then at that appointment. It just, every time I thought, okay, no, take a breath, like sort yourself out. We're going to get some good news now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, there's got to be something. But then there kind of was because at the end of the appointment, our specialist sort of said, you know what, I don't want an answer right now. I don't want, you know, I'm not going to let you make a decision right now. You're going to go home. Here's all this information. Talk about it. Think about it. Wait it out. Make a choice. Whatever it is, you'll be supported. So that was fantastic. So was in in terms of, I guess, then what what the plan was going forward, was it essentially... Either you decide to end the pregnancy 
or you decide to carry on and see how it progresses for as long as you can was that was that sort of the choice you were given or was there something else no that was basically it so it was either we can induce you can choose to terminate end the pregnancy labor whatever term you want to give it that was one option and the other was just go home and wait it out see what happens and we very distinctly didn't even have to talk about it we just said no we're not doing anything we're just gonna wait this out and see what happens because obviously we still were like no no this is all gonna be great we're gonna get our baby at the end of this it's gonna be fine like these things don't happen to people like this doesn't happen to us that was yeah just the immediately we both went no we're not making that choice like that's not up to us this baby's still alive this baby's been alive for two three weeks past what they told us and we're gonna just go with it and give them every chance possible which is what we did so that first appointment with the specialist was at 17 weeks and river wasn't born until 27 weeks so even from that first specialist appointment like she hung on for such a long time when they said oh no you'll miscarry at 13 and five days or whatever that first appointment was and what, gosh, what were you guys doing in that time in between? Were you still going to work? Were, like, were you working? Were you doing anything? Obviously, you've got this huge thing just hanging over you. Yeah, so I was obviously off work because I'd had my breast reduction. And uh, I think. Okay. So I guess that was a positive. So it was a negative in some sense because you obviously couldn't, you know, there were things you couldn't do, but in a sense, it was also positive because you yeah, were there. Yeah, there wasn't to, the added stress of me working, Lisa being at home by herself when something terrible yeah. happened or anything. Yeah, and we because I'd already had that leave off, I wasn't stressed. We weren't stressed about money. We weren't stressed about any of that kind of stuff. Lisa got leave from her work. That wasn't a problem. Um, yeah, so we sort of were just sitting around, just waiting, being very anxious, crying a lot, Googling a lot, reading other people's stories on Facebook, like just trying to pass the time, I suppose, because at that point we were having, until we reached, I think it was about 23 weeks, we were having appointments, I want to say every month, and then once we reached sort of viability, we had weekly appointments. Um, So each week we'd drive down to the specialist again and it was always such an anxious trip because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, So as we got closer to like about 22, 23 weeks, we sort of were told, you know, your baby needs to at least get to 24 weeks for them to have a fighting chance. Um, And because they were measuring smaller, like much smaller than expected, um, Mm -hmm. it was we sort of need to get further than 24 weeks because even if she were born, so we didn't find out gender, but Even if she were born at 24 weeks, the outcome probably wouldn't have been great because of her small size and also because she's had no fluid, her lungs weren't developing as normal. Yeah, so there were a lot of sort of things that were going against us. So we really just needed to stay pregnant, basically. That was the biggest thing. And all of our appointments kind of, they didn't get more negative they didn't really get more positive either they sort of just stayed the same it was just we'd walk in we'd see our specialist she would congratulate us for making it another week and we'd all cross our fingers and hope in a week's time we'd be back there again 
having the same conversation. So as we got closer to 24 weeks, we met um, a neonatologist. We talked with him about the reality of having a premature baby of River's size because she was so small. So he could give us sort of real-life facts and he could say, you know, this is how small your baby will be and this is what it's going to look like to have a premature baby and you're going to be in the NICU for months and sort of to give us some more um, information that we actually could picture in our head instead of just, oh, here's a leaflet, go home and read it. It was good to be able to sit down and really talk through all of those things with him and he sort of said to us, you know, you really need to having a preemie baby if she survives labour, if she makes it to the NICU, you're going to have to make some really big decisions and you've got to always remember why you're having a baby. Do you want a baby even if they're going to be disabled to the point that there's no quality of life? Can you make the decisions that you're going to need to make? You've got to really prepare yourself for all of those things. So that, I think it was a huge shock. Again, it was a huge shock because we just thought, no, no, everything will be fine. We'll get to like 38 weeks and go home and everything will be great. But the reality is that that's not what was going to happen for us. That sounds like it was actually really useful and helpful to be able to perhaps have that conversation. And even though it's not something you want to hear, I guess did it give you a bit of time to process and actually think through some of those things and some of those decisions and and the sort of, I guess, come to terms with what River might look like when she was born? Yeah, so it was good because, like, I really like information. I really like to know everything about everything that's happening, everything that could happen, everything that might happen but probably won't happen. I just needed to know everything. So being able to talk to him, and we sort of knew a couple of weeks in advance that we would be meeting him and have this conversation. So we sort of had questions prepared. Um, Anything that our specialist couldn't answer, she'd say, you know, write it down, ask the specialist, the neonatologist in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, it was good because we didn't want to live in fairyland. You know, everyone that we told, they were kind of like, oh, you know, stay positive and good vibes and all that kind of thing. And that's not, we didn't need that. Like we needed a medical miracle to keep Lisa pregnant so our child would survive. We didn't want good vibes and any of that nonsense because that's not what keeps human beings alive. And it was really hard to try and explain that to people. Like we don't want you to all just cross your fingers. We need you to listen when we want to talk about the options we've been given and the decisions that we're going to have to make and the realities of what our child is going to go through if they survive. So that was quite hard, but it was good to be able to go to the hospital, see our specialist, have all of our questions answered. Anything we needed, they just would bend over backwards to facilitate. Nothing was too much trouble. We had their emails, we had their phone numbers. It was, yeah, it was really, really great compared to every other experience we'd had up to then. So it was good to be as prepared as possible. Not that you can be, but to have the information that we would need to make decisions in the future. Yeah. So you made it past viability. So you've got past that 24-week point. What what then happened next? Yeah. So we reached our 24-week appointment and from our 23-week appointment onwards, our specialist said, every time you come here from now on, you need to bring a bag, 
have everything in it that you need. In the event we do admit you, you won't be going home until the baby's born. So that was from 23 weeks onwards. So at 24 weeks, we got to our appointment. They did a scan at every single appointment. Um, at the 24-week appointment, River was still very underweight and she was so underweight that had she have been born, she probably wouldn't have survived. So we had a really tough conversation with our specialist about did we want to be admitted at 24 weeks or did we want to push it to 25? So we made the decision to push it to 25 because even if she were born at 24 weeks, no matter which hospital we ended up in, her survival outcomes were very, very slim. And had they given you a weight that they were kind of aiming to to get her to? Not particularly. Um, It was basically they would give us a sort of ballpark weight in grams of what she was currently at because obviously they can only estimate so much. Um, So I can't remember exactly. I do have it written down somewhere, but I think she was about, so at our 22-week appointment she was only 450 grams and she was like second, third percentile. So she was very small, very slim chances. So we just made the decision, right, 25 weeks, that's when we'll be admitted. And unfortunately, we were at home on, so it was 24 weeks and two days. Um, That was our last appointment with the specialist. At uh, 24 weeks and five days, so we were two days shy of our next appointment, we were at home and Lisa had a massive bleed and it was terrifying. It was one of the scariest things either one of us have ever experienced. Um, she was laying on a mattress on the lounge room floor. We were watching a movie. It was a Friday night. And she just went, <gasps> and I kind of looked down and I was on the lounge chair and I just I panicked immediately. And she had a hand between her legs and lifted her hand up and it was just red. And I my, I just panicked. But when I panicked, I'm like switched on. If there's an emergency, I am there, I'm ready. Adre- your adrenaline kicks in and, yeah, you go into crisis mode. Yeah, yeah any other time of the day, I can't speak properly. But the minute there's an emergency, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm here. What do I need? Like, what do I need to do? Where am I? What's happening? Every detail. I remember everything. So I immediately called an ambulance. I explained everything that had happened. So I explained the fibroids, the stage of pregnancy, the loss of fluid. She'd also been diagnosed with placenta previa, which we'd found out quite late in the pregnancy. Which is when the placenta is low-lying and is either close to or covers the cervix. Yeah, so it covers the opening of the cervix. Yeah. So unfortunately, with in Lisa's case, it completely covered the cervix opening. So there was absolutely no way that baby was coming out except by a C-section. So that was my other panic. She's bleeding. Baby's not coming out. What's happening? Basically, I was terrified. Called an ambulance. They arrived, took us to one of our local hospitals, and luckily we saw a doctor there who we'd seen previously at one of our other appointments. And I said to her, they kind of established that she wasn't in labour and they established that sort of she was okay and River was okay. There was still a heartbeat. Everything was kind of okay-ish. And I, the doctor walked in and I saw her and I just said, we're not going home. We need to go to Royal North Shore right now. 
So I sort of very quickly made it quite clear that I don't care what anyone else thinks. If you don't take us, I'll take us somehow. And she said, nope, that's fine. Um, I'll arrange it right now. So we got an ambulance down to the hospital where our specialist was and it was probably the longest but also shortest ambulance ride ever. And I, the whole, it was so terrifying because she was bleeding. There was so much blood, but the baby couldn't come out. So my thought was the baby's going to die. Lisa's going to die. What is going on? I can't do anything. I'm just sitting in the ambulance hoping we make it to the hospital in time. So luckily we got to the hospital and the staff at this hospital are just incredible. Every single one of them was incredible. And they, we sort of arrived, they established everything was okay, baby's okay, Lisa's okay, bleeding stopped. We were then informed that you can bleed and it's very normal with placenta mm-hmm. previa, but we hadn't really been told that. I think the focus was so much on keeping the baby alive and keeping Lisa alive that maybe it just wasn't mentioned or it was forgotten or something. But, yeah, so we got to hospital. They administered steroids so that if River were born, that would give her lungs a slight chance to mature in time. Um, And then we were admitted. So then we just stayed at the hospital, um, which was great because it's where we needed to be. Mm -hmm. If River were to be born, that's where she had the greatest chance of surviving and being looked after. And were you given any kind of prognosis then in terms of, you know, how long this could go on for? Or was it still a case of, right, we're just taking things day at a time, week at a time, and hoping, you know, you can hold out as long as possible? Yeah, that was pretty much it. So the following day, like we got to that hospital quite late at night and the following morning our specialist came to see us. She said, well, you decided to come early. Sure, (laughs) great that you're here. Um, And kind of the stress of the night before had sort of worn off a little bit and we felt a bit safer and we had an amazing group of midwives looking after us and looking after me as well as Lisa. So that was, I wasn't made feel like, you know, you need to leave now or there was a bed for me and there was food and it was they were extremely accommodating which helped everything um, but yeah so we saw the specialist the next morning and she said you know you're here now so if anything does happen you're in the right place but you need to keep the baby in for as long as possible to give them a chance which was easier said than done obviously but yeah it just it was a huge comfort to be there and to be in a safe place and also be surrounded by people who understood and were supportive and listened to our concerns and sort of backed up our concerns and just supported us. I guess that's we didn't get that a whole lot outside of the hospital. So kind of being there, although we didn't want to be there because that might be where our baby dies, it might be where Lisa dies, it might be where something terrible happens, It's it was really the only place we wanted to be because it's, that was where we felt safest. And so you got to 27 or just over 27 weeks. What happened at that point? Yeah, so 27 weeks and one day. Um, it was about 10 p.m. Lisa and I were laying in bed in the hospital, tiny little hospital bed, watching a movie, and she'd sort of been getting some weird cramps and a little bit of bleeding, which she'd had sort of the whole time we were at the hospital. It was totally normal. They were keeping an eye on it and measuring how much blood she was losing and all that kind of thing. And it was, 
she was losing quite a significant amount of blood and we'd called the midwives in and they said, you know, this is very normal, just each time you go to the toilet and you've lost a lot of blood or each time you pass a clot, just buzz us and we'll come in and check and everything sort of will be okay. And the obstetrician on call came to see us and he was lovely and he kind of said, you know, everyone in the hospital is aware We've got the team ready. If anything happens, hopefully it's not happening because there were no sort of signs of labour at that point. And he just really reassured us that if anything happened, if it progressed and anything happened, we would be okay and everything would be looked after and we'd be safe and all that kind of stuff. And then just before midnight, um, she had a really big bleed, like a massive clot, and she was in the bathroom and I was helping Lisa and I just immediately pressed not the emergency buzzer, but the next buzzer down. Mm -hmm. And I turned around and about five midwives ran in the room. And a few days later, because the period of time we were in hospital all together for like maybe 18 days and we sort of kept getting the same midwives. So we'd gotten to know them and they'd gotten to know us. And one of them had said to us, don't panic unless you've got three or more midwives in the room. There's just one or just two, don't panic. Like it was good though because she was like they weren't treating us like idiots. They were sort of telling us everything that we needed to know because like it was our baby's life and it was Lisa's life and we felt very informed about everything. So, yeah, when I turned around and five midwives had run in, they'd opened up the double doors to the room, they'd pushed the bed out of the way, like I just went, oh, no, it's happening, it's actually happening. And I sort of, I can't remember ever even feeling hopeful because of the stress of what was happening, like there was so much blood, there were so many midwives, it was just terrifying. So they put Lisa on the bed, immediately pushed her up to the birthing suite. And then because of Lisa's fibroids, they used to have quite a bit of trouble finding River's heartbeat just because there's so many fibroids in there, like what's a baby and what's a fibroid basically. So we get up there and there's a midwife straddling Lisa on the bed trying to find baby's heartbeat and I said to the midwife because I could tell she was sort of panicking that she couldn't find it and I said to her they do struggle because of the fibroids so it does usually take a while and she said okay so she keeps looking and there's just more and more midwives appearing in this room and then Lisa looked up at me and she was white as a ghost and she said oh I don't feel well and at the same time she had another massive bleed and the midwife had found River's heartbeat and it had plummeted and then um, Lisa's blood pressure had plummeted and I just immediately reached out and whacked the emergency buzzer. And as I pressed it, the midwife said, quick, press it. So it was like I did it before she said anything, but she said it at the same time. And I pressed it, all the buzzers are going off and I turn around and there was about 30 people in the room and I could hear people running, doors were being opened, people were clearing things out of the way, and I just was freaking out because, like, Lisa had really gone downhill and I just thought, oh, my God, like, this is my worst, absolute worst outcome because up until then we sort of knew our baby might die, but no one had really prepared us for Lisa might die because it's not common it's not people don't talk about it like so 
I was freaking out and I knew because of the fibroids she would have a cesarean, but the so they're basically full of blood. So it immediately classes her as high risk. But during a cesarean, if they cut one, she can bleed out basically. So on top of all the risks of a baby or our baby, there was a huge risk to Lisa. So we all along knew that Lisa would have to go into general anaesthetic because it wouldn't just be a standard cesarean. And because she was under general, I wouldn't be allowed to be in the room, which was really hard because now it's our first baby and best thing ever. And I knew all along that I wouldn't have been able to be in there. And then at the time, because Lisa was extremely unwell, baby was really unwell, there was blood everywhere, there were people everywhere, there was a huge panic. The obstetrician came in and he like threw a pile of clothes at me and he said, put these on, and it was all the sort of scrub things. And in my head I was thinking, but I, why? I can't, what's happening? I can't go in. He knows I can't go in. I know I can't go in. And then I sort of, he said, baby's coming right now. And he kind of looked at me across the room because there were so many people in the room. And he looked at me and said, baby's coming right now. And I said, okay. And he said, say goodbye to Lisa. So I did. And she was pretty out of it by then because she was quite unwell. And that was it. She was out the door. And I was just left in the room with these scrubs on that I knew I didn't need on. And everyone had sort of rushed out of the room. Well, I think there was one or two midwives left in there that kind of were on standby for when I fell to pieces, which definitely happened. <laughs> and, yeah, that was it. So Lisa was rushed off to theatre and I was just left there going, what? just happened so that was probably I mean it felt like it all happened in five minutes but it was probably more like an hour between sort of that first bleed and getting her up there and finding heartbeat and all that it was terrifying and then you were just left to wait I guess to wait for whatever news was coming out whether it was good news or bad news or yeah so Lisa was rushed off from memory, I think it was about maybe 11 o'clock and she was rushed straight to theatre and I kind of was just left in there and the midwives were all fantastic. Here's some water and are you cold? Here's a blanket and because I just freaked out. Once she left, I just panicked and they sort of kind of left me alone but kept coming in to check up on me because, like, no one could say anything. I was just sort of sitting there going, what on earth is happening? So it was about two hours that I was in that room just not really knowing anything. I couldn't get a hold of Lisa's parents because they were asleep and either couldn't hear the phone ring or I don't know, I couldn't get a hold of them. I quickly rang my mum and I just said, baby's coming, she's gone into theatre, I don't know what's happening, I'll text you. And then I was trying to ring um, Lisa's parents again, couldn't get a hold of them. I rang her brother, he didn't answer. I rang her brother's wife, she finally answered and I said, Lisa's just gone into theatre. This is terrifying. I don't know what to tell you. I'll text you. And I said, I can't get a hold of Lisa's parents. Can you see if you can get a hold of them or drive around there or something? And eventually I called them and her father answered and I said, you know, this is what's happened. Lisa's gone into labour. She's in theatre. I'll message you when I know what's happening. And so then I sort of was just pacing around the room, crying, not crying, freaking out, not knowing what to do. And a midwife walked in and I just, I was so scared that 
my baby was going to die and that Lisa was going to die. But also I was like, oh, this doesn't happen to me. This happens to other people. Like, why would this happen to us? Like, we're great. This Bad things don't happen to us. Like, just totally naive still. I still hadn't fully understood what was happening. And so my midwife walked in and I just looked at her and I said, are they alive? And she looked at me and she said, yes. And she said, you have a daughter. And we, the whole pregnancy, thought we were going to have a boy. I don't know why. We just, in our head, we're like, it's going to be a boy. It's just for some reason we both had this boy feeling. So she said, yes, they're both alive, which I was over the moon about because I was terrified. And then when she said, you have a daughter, I was, it was like a complete surprise that I wasn't expecting would make me so happy. Like no matter what gender our baby was, we would have been stoked. But just the extra surprise of having a girl when we thought we were having a boy. And then, yeah, she just said, baby's alive, Lisa's alive, she's in recovery, Lisa's okay, the obstetrician will be up in a minute. And I said, okay. So I'm just sitting there again waiting. And the obstetrician came in, he gave me a big hug, he said congratulations, which was lovely because it's about the only person who said that to us in the whole experience. And he said, Lisa actually is amazing. She did really well, didn't lose anywhere near as much blood as we thought. Overall, was much better than he was expecting. So that I felt really positive about that because I was so scared that she was going to die. And for them, for him to come up then and say, you know, it actually went really well, it was a huge relief. So then I just, again, was sitting there waiting. Um, and then I think another midwife came in and sort of was checking up and I don't know, we we're talking about something. And then she said, okay, so the neonatologist, because uh, I said, when can I meet our baby? And they sort of came in, there was about four midwives at the door. And they said, oh, my God, congratulations. And they were all, like, gushing. And someone said, oh, what's her name? Do you have a name? And I said, yeah, it's River. So about a week prior while we were in hospital, we decided regardless of gender, they were going to be River. So it fits either one. Middle name obviously would have been different. But, yeah, we decided it was River. So, And that was the first time I said it out loud to somebody else. And it was like this moment I was, like, so proud in amongst everything that was happening so yeah they sort of talked to me and they said I said when can I see her like I want to see her right now and they said that she was up in the NICU and they were working on her she was really sick and when I could go in and see her the neonatologist would come to me explain what was happening and then a midwife would take me when she was ready and I'd be able to meet her then there was another big waiting game. Lisa was still in recovery, so I hadn't seen her yet. And then the neonatologist came in and saw me. And she is another person who is just the most incredible human being ever. And she sat down and she gave me a big hug, asked me what the baby's name was, said it was River. She gave me a big hug, congratulations, all of that good stuff. And then she started to explain everything that, had happened or all of the complications, everything that River was experiencing. So we sort of expected most of it. You know, she was very small, had to be resuscitated, 
lungs were very seriously underdeveloped. She had contractions. So because there was no fluid, she couldn't move around, sort of floating around and being a baby in the womb. Because there was no fluid, she was kind of very tucked in, couldn't stretch, couldn't anything. So her wrists were like sort of pulled in. She couldn't stretch her hands out, her sort of knees and ankles. Everything was kind of just tucked in. But that was the least of our concerns. That could be treated with a physio. That wasn't a big deal at all. Um, she was on heart medication. Um, she was on antibiotics, very touch and go. And one of the last things she said to me was, it's very important that you and Lisa come and meet her. So she she didn't think that she was going to... She was going to survive that no. long. <laughs> and I guess Lisa was still on, was she still on, she must have still been unconscious at this point from, you know, being under the general anaesthetic or she woken up? Um, she, she was in the lead up to her going to theatre, they'd given her a lot of pain medication because she was really not doing very well. So on top of going under general, she'd had all that pain medication gone on a general and then woken up and she was in a huge amount of pain so they'd given her more so she was very very yeah she was very out of it and so she was still in recovery I hadn't seen her yet so I was still talking to the neonatologist and we had a really sort of frank conversation and she said you know she's very very sick um explained everything that was going on and said it's very important that you come and meet her and then she said I'm going to be really honest with you and I don't want River to suffer so I'm going to explain everything that's happening and I'm going to tell you what I recommend because I don't want to see her suffer and I said that's perfectly fine that's what we want we don't want our baby to suffer. So Lisa and I had had all these conversations about possible outcomes and where our thoughts were and we had to get on the same page, but we were right from the beginning, which worked out well. Um, but, yeah, so she basically said, I'm going to tell you what's happening. I'm going to be really sort of blunt about it and we'll go from there. And I said, okay, that's perfect. That's what we need because we sort of we knew what we wanted, but it's like we also needed a bit of guidance because we didn't, we've never experienced this. We didn't know what to do. So Lisa was brought back in and because the neonatologist said to me, do you want to come and meet her now? And I said, I'll wait for Lisa to come back. I want, just want to see Lisa first and then because I didn't realise how unwell Lisa was. So I thought we'll both go in and meet River together. I didn't want to, like, do it on my own and then Lisa go, oh, why didn't you wait or... So, yeah, Lisa came back in. I realised how out of it she was and I, they sort of got her in the room, put her bed in and everything and I went over and I gave her a big hug and she's, so she knew the baby was alive. She asked one of the nurses in recovery and all the nurse said was, yes, your baby's alive. That's it. There was no, she didn't sort of elaborate because Lisa was out of it. So I gave Lisa a big hug and then I said, we have a daughter and she was so shocked and obviously so out of it but you know like she cried and we were both happy and I said she's alive but she's really really sick and then because I knew Lisa was out of it I didn't 
sort of want to explain everything because I knew she either wouldn't understand, wouldn't remember. It just didn't seem important at the time. So I said to her, do you want to come and meet River with me or do you want me to go and when you feel a bit better, you can go in, like we'll take you in. And she said, yeah, you just go, you go now. So I had a midwife take me around to the NICU and we'd had a tour previously of the NICU while we were staying at the hospital. So we'd been given a tour so we could physically see a baby about the size that River would be and there wasn't any babies in there the size that River would be. So we saw the smallest possible baby and then we knew our baby would be smaller. So we'd seen the NICU, we knew where she would be in there. We sort of were somewhat prepared, but the minute I walked in and the bed was there, you know, the cover was up, they were still working on her, I just immediately just went, oh, my God, she's so small. Like I knew she would be small. I knew... So she weighed 789 grams, which the obstetrician had told me. So I knew she was very small. But actually seeing a perfect little baby that small, I just was completely shocked. I just didn't understand how a baby that small could be alive. And it was my baby. Like it was just a complete shock. You know, my hands were shaking and my whole body was quivering and I wanted to cry but I couldn't and it just it was such a strange feeling but the most amazing feeling and it was when I saw her it clicked how sick she was because it wasn't just you know like a little heart rate monitor and a little sunny zombie of little preemie babies with it was tubes out of her there were little tiny cannulas in her body there was blood she was bruised it was just so shocking and as prepared as I thought I was I was not prepared I don't think I don't think you can ever you know however prepared you think you are and I know I talked about this and obviously I was in a different situation but when my daughter was born you know I thought I was like okay well she might look like this or she might look like that and she was also I mean she was tiny even much smaller than sort of she she weighed less than river and um and I thought I was prepared and I wasn't at all I don't nothing prepares you really no no definitely not but yeah I got to meet her and one of the midwives said do you want to take photos you can take photos where's your phone and I sort of got my phone out and I tried and my hands were just shaking so much I like couldn't even hold on to my phone and I just handed it to her and I said can you please take some photos I can't do this I'm glad she did that for you though because I think that might be the sort of thing that you just wouldn't have perhaps thought about oh I never would have thought of it absolutely never would have thought of it and yeah so she took some photos she went around the other side and took photos of me with River um yeah it was just a complete shock so the neonatologist was there and she is just lovely and she really slowly sort of explained everything, explained to me what every wire was doing, what every tube was doing, what drugs they had her on, everything. Like everything there possibly was, she very slowly explained it so I could actually absorb everything. And they encouraged me to touch her, which I didn't think they would, being that she was so small. And I was so scared to touch her because she was so little and her skin was so fragile and I just thought I can't touch her. Like, what are you what do you mean I'm allowed to? So that was a big shock because I didn't think I would be allowed to. And 
her tiny little hands and her tiny little fingers and just everything. It was incredible but so shocking at the same time. So it was great for me to finally be able to meet her and I've been waiting hours Mm -hmm. and at the same time I was so, so happy but also terrified because it really sunk in then how sick she was. Mm -hmm. And then I thought when Lisa gets to meet her, how shocked Lisa would be and it was really hard. It was really hard being River's mum, knowing that when Lisa came in to meet her, that she would feel how I was feeling. It was really hard to accept that and to not be able to do anything about it. Um, But, yeah, it was amazing. I got to spend quite a bit of time with her and then I went back to see Lisa and then I was really torn because I wanted to stay with River but I also wanted to be with Lisa and I was worried about both of them and I was having to make decisions and sign paperwork and there were just so many things going on. But all of the staff, again, were so amazing that they were very aware of how many different directions I was being pulled in and just very so understanding and supportive and, yeah, every now and then that would be like, you know, go back and see Lisa, it's okay, like we're looking after River and have you had a drink, do you need any food, like everything, everything that my brain wasn't even operating and they were making sure that I was doing everything that I needed to be doing and was looking after Lisa and River and myself and, yeah, it was just amazing. It was horrendous but absolutely amazing at the same time. And then I guess Lisa sort of got to a point where she was, you know, the, the pain meds had perhaps um, were slightly less confusing for her and she was able to meet River. And obviously you've kind of been, I guess, given this kind of fairly negative prognosis or, you know, you've got this this sense that you're not sure what's going to happen with her and she's obviously super, super sick. What At what point did the doctors kind of come to you and tell you that they didn't think that she was so Lisa got to meet her a couple of hours later when she was feeling a bit better and every time I went back to see River the doctor would update me and it slowly sort of became oh you know she's actually doing better than we thought um you know she's still on full oxygen but we knew that would be happening and well, we've been able to decrease this and her heart rate's doing better and her blood pressure's doing better and there were slight improvements. And then that afternoon, so she was born at 1.04 a.m., that sort of afternoon and night, it, everything was far more positive and there was more of a, well, the neonatologist said to me, if we can get her through 48 hours, if we can get her to 48 hours, she'll kind of be over the most difficult part. For her and then so that day you know I was up and down seeing River seeing Lisa and the following morning we we're about to get Lisa up out of her bed into a wheelchair so she could sort of sit up and see River because laying down in the bed it was quite difficult for her to even be able to see her properly and one of the midwives came into the room and it was one of the midwives we'd had many other days so we were quite close with her and 
she walked in and she said, oh, my God, I heard you had a baby. Congratulations. And she was sort of gushing and we were telling her about River. And I said, oh, she's up in the NICU and she's actually doing pretty good. Like they're quite happy with how she's improving. And she said, the NICU just called. You need to go up there right now. And we were told the only time the NICU will call is if something bad has happened. So it was that immediate, I've never felt it otherwise, but my blood just immediately ran cold and I just thought, oh, no, everything they said would happen is going to happen. Like it was horrible. So we sort of immediately got taken up to the NICU and... I can remember standing outside the little room River was in and we were opening the doors and moving stuff around to get Lisa's bed in. And the neonatologist was sort of standing a little bit further away and I just looked over at her and I just knew. So she'd been River's doctor from the minute she was born to the minute she died. Every time I went up there, she was there. She didn't leave. She was with River for 32 hours. So that. Gosh. Wow. That's some shift. <laughs> Gosh. Honestly, it's just incredible. So we got Lisa in and she was, her head was beside the, like River's little bed and I was standing beside Lisa's head and the doctor came over to us and she put her arm around me and she sort of held Lisa's hand. And she said, I am so sorry, but I think we have to let her go. And I just, I couldn't believe that it was happening. Mm -hmm. And it was just the worst moment. And I think forever will be the absolute worst moment. And she sort of, she said, Every single thing we didn't want to happen has happened. So early that morning she had had two grade four um, intraventricular hemorrhages, which is a brain bleed, and a grade four is the absolute worst it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. You can't get any worse than that. And I said to her, are you sure? And she sort of just turned and looked at me and said, I'm so sorry. And I said, how bad is it? And she said, it's catastrophic was the word that she used. And mm -hmm. she just said, you know, she's been having seizures. Her blood pressure's all over the place. We can't stabilise her. It's sort of, it's time. And we sort of talked a little bit and Lisa and I just made that decision that, we didn't want her to suffer mm -hmm. and we didn't want to keep her alive for our sake. Um, so, yeah, that was really hard. It was really, really hard. And it was... I mean, I think it's the most heartbreaking decision a parent could ever, Yeah, ever absolutely. It's make. not a decision we thought we would ever have to make. Even up until then, we were just so hopeful. Yeah, and we just again, thought this doesn't happen to us. Like, why would this happen to us? Like, this is not fair. This is not how the world works. Um, what do you mean? Like, 
So to have to make that choice was absolutely horrendous. And within probably about an hour or an hour and a half, um, we're all laying in bed together and we did hand and footprints. And And you were able to hold her. Yeah, so that was the first time we were able to hold her and Lisa was holding her and I was kind of just sort of cuddled in on the side. Yeah, yeah. And it sort of closed all the curtains off so we had a bit of privacy and, um, yeah, the doctor stayed with us and a couple of mid, uh, a couple of nurses were there with us and, yeah, we took River off life support and it was just horrible. There aren't any words that could possibly explain how heartbreaking it is to have your child die in your arms. Like it just, even now, like nearly 18 months later, it's still like it's happening right now. It just, it's horrible. And after she passed away, were you able to then spend some time with her in the hospital before you had to say goodbye to her? And you said you'd kind of done hand and footprints. Did the did the hospital offer you much in the way of that kind of memory making, I guess, as you, you sort of get a chance to hold her now and, and kind of come to terms with what's happened? Yeah, so we got taken down. The doctor sort of talked us through everything, which was great. We weren't really unsure about anything, anything we needed to know. We just asked and they answered honestly. Um, So basically we went back down to the room um, on the maternity ward and then moved us to this room kind of further away, which I now realise is probably their bereavement suite. I didn't realise at the time, but I think that's sort of, they kind of knew what the outcome might have been, so they preemptively moved us to that room. And we got to give River a bath. And we got to dress her and we all up, we spent two and a half days with her. So um, we had a cold cot and we got to keep her in the room. We got to cuddle her and snuggle her and take photos and all that kind of thing. And up in the, so the day River was born, a nurse in the NICU said to me, we're going to arrange Heartfelt to come and take photos. So Heartfelt's an organisation in Australia that take photos of um, seriously ill or dead children, um, babies, stillborn babies, that kind of thing. They come to the hospital and they'll take photos and really high-quality, amazing photos, and they'll send you the photos on a, on a USB and all the rest of it. So we knew that they were available. So once River died, the nurses said, we've already organised them. There'll be a photographer here this afternoon. And we said, okay. So that was, again, another thing we didn't have to worry about. So, yeah, we got to spend time with River and cuddle her and snuggle her and my mum got to come and say goodbye to her. Lisa's parents came and said goodbye to her and, yeah, that afternoon we had an amazing photographer come and take some really nice photos for us. Um, I've seen a couple of the photos on your Instagram. They really are beautiful. We have a similar organisation called Remember My Baby who operate in the UK and, yeah, they do such a – fantastic job at capturing those those family like a family photo which is the thing that you know 
because obviously when your baby dies, you know, you lose all that lifetime of memories and all you have is a few photos and there are never enough photos. There could never be enough photos, but even just having those is something to remember. Yeah, and a lot of the photos, um, there's obviously photos of River by herself and each one of us individually with River and then family photos. And in some of them, if you don't look close enough, you wouldn't know that she wasn't alive. So it's nice to have family photos that are like a normal family photo. But, yeah, they're all incredible photos and we are so thankful to have them um, because if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't we wouldn't have iPhone photos. You know, they're not the greatest quality. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the whole time River was alive, all of the nurses were um, very much encouraging us to take photos, take videos, which I never would have thought to do. So... I know a lot of people don't have photos of their babies and they really struggle with that, but I just feel so thankful that the nurses that were taking care of our family were so encouraging about that kind of thing because if they hadn't have been, I wouldn't have even, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to take photos or videos because everything was just so rushed and frantic and, yeah, I was just so torn in so many directions. So it was nice to have that extra support that we didn't even know we needed. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've talked with other guests and I've talked about my own experience of this. And I think there is definitely something about you're not necessarily, you're not in that position to know what you want right then sometimes. And sometimes you do need to be led on that, on that route um, by other people. And I guess at some point you then had to leave her, leave her behind and go back home and what was your experience of grief like in those early weeks? And did you feel that you and Lisa were treated differently at all during um, that time? Early, sort of when we got home, it was really hard. We wanted to leave the hospital. Once we'd said goodbye to River, we didn't want to be there. But then the minute we got home, we wanted to be at the hospital because the support was just, you couldn't even compare it. There was at the hospital anything you needed it was done. You barely even had to ask for it and it was done. And once we got home, we just felt so isolated and alone and we felt supported. You know, we had friends and we had some family support, but it very quickly kind of tapered off. And, you know, we've got a handful of friends that to this day are the most amazing, loving and supportive friends to us and to River. And without them, we'd be in a much different place. Um, I do think our experiences of grief and grieving and support have been very different. Lisa being mum who birthed River gets more, um, I don't want to say attention, it's not attention, just it's more focused on her. I think because I didn't birth River, my experience couldn't possibly be the same and our connection couldn't possibly be the same. And I've had a few comments like that, oh, it must be so much harder for Lisa because she carried River. And that's really difficult because, yes, our grief is very different and our experience is very different. Um, And I think it's probably the same for a lot of fathers as well, that they sort of have to sit on the sidelines and we have to watch our partners go through this horrendous experience Um, for me, especially a really hard thing that I've not really been able to deal with very well is 
through all of it, I didn't know if Lisa would survive. And even now I feel like nobody else had that same concern and it's hard because I experienced this terrible thing Mm. not knowing if I would be alone after it. Um, and that must have a huge amount of trauma. I mean, I mean, what you went through, obviously what Lisa went through f- physically and mentally was very traumatic, but you also went through that trauma. And in some cases, you know, you you had to wait there. You had to sit there not knowing whether your baby was going to survive, whether your wife was going to survive. And that that is a massive, massive thing that actually, you know, you know most most fathers or wives don't go through that I mean you had a particularly traumatic experience you know and I feel I don't know I feel like that should be recognized independently of the loss you know rivers independently of rivers death yeah that's probably a really succinct way of putting that I guess it's like it I mean a lot of people have chosen to pretend like river didn't exist and this whole thing didn't happen and we should just move on and all the rest of it but then even with the people who do support us, sometimes it almost feels like my experience and the overall experience because I saw a lot of things and I heard a lot of things and I had to make a lot of decisions. It's no one really realises that and on top of that, most people don't ask. Most people don't say, oh, what was it like for you or even just little things like people don't ask about labour, people don't ask about all those things that you experience as a parent of a stillborn baby or a baby who dies after birth. Those questions don't get asked. So that in itself is really difficult. But then for me to not be able to like talk through what I saw and what I felt and all that kind of thing, that's, yeah, that's been really, really difficult to have to try and process all of that sort of just with Lisa. and. We are an amazing support to each other and without each other, we'd both be in a very, very different place. So although we haven't had the support that we need from our families and from a lot of friends, we do have each other and we are so thankful for that. And we do have a very small group of friends who have been just completely amazing and supportive and acknowledging and curious and they ask questions and they're not scared to ask questions and they want to hear about all the good things and all the bad things and they want to see pictures and so that's been really fantastic and it's although it's really hard to not have the support that we need from certain people the support we do have from our incredible friends has really helped us through what otherwise we may not have gotten through which has been great. Did you find that you and Lisa kind of followed a similar path with your grief or did you grieve differently or at different stages? I think we've sort of been kind of mostly on the same path, but I've we've definitely, if one of us is having a breakdown, the other one isn't. And it's right up until now, it's very much like that. So initially, obviously both at the hospital, we were complete wrecks. And then we came home, yeah. Lisa completely had fallen apart and I knew I couldn't because I had to make all the phone calls, register River's birth, call the funeral home, sort all that stuff out and sort all the logistics out. And I knew I had to kind of keep myself together to get that done because if 
I couldn't get it done, it wouldn't get done. So Lisa kind of fell apart at first and then I sort of stayed strong and then it sort of roles reversed and it's always been like that right up until now. If one of us is really having a hard time, the other one will try and sort of hold it together and support the other. But, yeah, there's definitely been times where we've been going through the same sort of motions at the same time and that's really hard because we're mm-hmm. both really down and can't really reach out to anyone because it's just people just don't get it, which is absolutely not their fault at all. It's just really hard to not be able to get the support when we both need it at the same time. But we have two wonderful little dogs who provide us with lots of love and lots of cuddles. So without them. And force you to do things like going out and taking them for walks and like practical stuff like that. And a few months after River died, you went travelling around Australia in a converted bus. I'm guessing that wasn't something you planned to do with a newborn baby. So what made you decide to go on that journey? And did it help you sort of work through? Some yeah, so we bought the bus. It was probably about three months after River died. We were really not in a good place and we weren't being supported and felt overall pretty terrible. And we kind of made the decision that we needed to get out of where we were or things would get very bad. So I just said to Lisa, why don't we just buy a bus? So we'd we'd planned to travel, obviously, when River was a little bit older and travel around the country and do all that sort of thing. And I just said, why don't we just do it now? Like, we need to get out of here. We can't be here any longer. It's too hard. It's not helpful for us. It's really damaging our mental health. We need to leave. So... We found this bus. We had a month left on our lease. We sold everything we owned, decked out the bus, drove away a month later, and we spent about three or four months living in the bus, travelling up the coast, and it was both fantastic but also not a holiday. So it was quite confusing because a lot of people thought, oh, sweet, you're, like, travelling around the country and seeing all these great sights. Living the dream. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was very much that was what everyone sort of thought. And I guess what they didn't all realise is that most of the day we were crying. Most of the day we were doing things thinking our daughter should be here. We shouldn't be here. We should be at home. We should still be in the NICU. We should be having, like, family gatherings. We should be spending time with our daughter and watching her grow and that's not happening and... The bus was great in that we got away. We got to just be alone and be together with our dog. We only had one dog at the time. So that was, it was really good. We got to, you know, go to a lot of beaches where we could just be by ourselves on the beach. And we're big beach people. We're big outdoors people. So being able to just drive away and not answer our phone if we didn't want to, not answer text messages if we didn't want to. We didn't have to worry about uninvited guests rocking up to our house when we didn't want guests. We didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. So it was exactly what we needed and it made a really big difference to us. Like we got to talk through a lot of things and we got to process a lot of stuff without having to worry about work, without having to worry about family, without having to worry about friends, without having to worry about anything that daily life involves. So, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic and we don't regret it at all um it was amazing to to be able to just get away and be alone 
I think that thing about, yeah, because I'm sure people saw those photos and they were like, oh, you know, it's fantastic. They're going away. Oh, they're so lucky. And look at all those beautiful places they're seeing. But you're right. It's not it's not a holiday. We went, so after skydiving, we had just very shortly after we died, because we were supposed to be going on holiday the week after. We postponed that slightly. We have a camper van. So we, we went up to Scotland and, and we just, we had a couple of or sort of 10 days then just, yeah, as you say, away from everything. But then about four months later, we booked to go on a holiday because we felt, oh, we need, you know, we need a proper holiday. But, and I actually thought, oh, it'll be, it'll be good, you know, we'll go, it'll be happy time, it'll be fantastic, we can have a holiday and then come back and then maybe I can get my head back into work or something. And it was nice and, you know, we did have a nice time but there was something, there was something never complete there. It was never, it was never happy, you know. There was always that kind of weight that you're carrying with you that, you know, this this, there's something about this which isn't quite yeah. right. Yeah. And that definitely takes away from everything. Yeah. yeah. The the sort of typical yeah. holiday joy. Yeah, exactly. That you feel you just don't yeah. get that experience. Yeah. So even once we came back, we came back to the coast where we lived before and we'd sort of see people again and it was really hard. They were like, oh, how was your holiday? How was your time away? And it was really difficult to navigate grief because we were like eight months post river dying on top of trying to navigate all of these friendships and relationships with people that weren't supportive, but we then had to try and explain to them in a polite way that it wasn't a holiday. We had to get away because we needed to for our mental health. And, yeah, it was just just the overall misunderstanding of our life and what it has become I think was really hard to figure out. Yeah, and I think there's also that feeling of having to come back to reality as well. Like, yeah, definitely. You can't, as much as you want to, you can't just carry on driving in the bus forever. Forever, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that the once we realised we sort of had to come back and go back to work and earn some money and live again was really hard because I think most people feel the same, like your baby dies and your world just completely stops but everything else carries on and that's really hard to accept and sort of fit back into when you do have to re-enter normal life and you do have to go back to work and you do have bills to pay and all the rest of it. That's Yeah, that was a really difficult um, period of time. Mm. And how, sort of since then, how have you chosen to remember River and involve her in your life and how has she changed you both after you got back home from that trip? Um, So River obviously is everything to us and her dying didn't change that. Mm. Um, About, I think it was only a couple of weeks after River died, we went and both got matching tattoos of her name. Um, So we've got that on our arm there. We've got three little other parts, one for me, one for Lisa and a little one in the middle for River. So that was kind of the first thing we did. Um, Yeah, and then we, you know, we've donated to charities, we've donated and continue to and will always donate to Heartfelt, to Bears of Hope, who in Australia they provide the cuddle cots in hospitals, they provide little packs to people who have lost their children. Um, They do community events, which we attended one last year, which was really incredible. Um, 
we have shirts with her names on it. We talk about her all the time. If we go on, hopefully, to have another child or more children, obviously she will always be their big sister. We'll always talk about her and celebrate her birthdays and celebrate her and all those sorts of things. We buy each other Mother's Day gifts and we it's like she's here but she's not. Um, but, yeah, she'll always be a part of our life. We talk about her all the time. We include her in everything. We take her ashes with us anytime we go anywhere. Um, we actually got married earlier this year and went overseas for our honeymoon and I was paranoid about taking her ashes with me. I didn't want to, like, trot through customs and then have them take her away from us. So the, I, we sort of got the all clear that we could do it, but that overwhelming fear that something would happen um, overtook. So we asked our incredible, amazing friend to take care of River while we were away. And that was really hard. That was, yeah, just the two weeks of going overseas and her not being with us, but also knowing that she was in the absolute best care we have. You know, our amazing best friend took incredible care of her and always will. So that's that's really special to us. And, yeah, I think we've both really changed. We've really changed, as I assume most people do. You know, it's affected our lives in a lot of ways. It's affected our mental health. It's affected our social lives. It's affected every single relationship that we have with every single person. Um it's definitely brought us closer, but it's also opened this sort of world that we never knew existed. And it's absolutely horrendous to know how many babies die. And as a result of that, it's been great to be able to make connections with other bereaved parents because you don't get the same support from anywhere else. You don't get the understanding. So so it's something that you can't really understand unless you have, like, you you know, you can try and understand and people can, you know, be as empathetic as possible. But, you know, unless you've been through it, there are, you know, there are, there are parts of it that, yeah, that other people just get. Yeah, which that's absolutely normal. Like it's, I don't want people to understand how we feel and that's really hard to explain to people as well. Like I don't want anyone to understand I don't want anyone to ever feel how I feel but the reality is there are people who do there are people who completely understand and the support you get from those people is just different it's not that it's better it's just different it's more understanding just on a level that you otherwise just can't possibly understand so yeah it's been great to make a few really good connections with other people who you just know they just get it. You don't have to explain anything. They'll message you on birthdays. They'll message you on really hard days. They'll just message to check in. They'll just all that kind of thing, which has been really great. But, yeah, as our other social circle from before, that social circle, that family sort of dynamic that we had before, that has all completely changed or disappeared completely. So although our support now is down to about five people we've also got all these people sort of online that we can connect with and understand 
together and we can support them and they can support us and yeah that's been not a bonus and it's not a positive and I would prefer to not know any of these people but the reality is is that we do so I'm happy that we've been able to find people that do understand and can support us. And just as a as a final question, if there's someone who is newly bereaved listening to this, what would you like to tell them? That's a hard one. I think I think it's grim, but I think something that somebody said to us very early on when River died, and it was another bereaved mother that Lisa knows personally, she said to us, and I sort of couldn't believe it when she said it but I'm happy she said it. She said, um, so she lost her daughter as well. Her daughter died and she said, you know, I'm so sorry that you've experienced this and it sucks, everything sucks, the world sucks, this is unfair, all the rest of it, and I'm really sorry to tell you, but it doesn't get any easier. And that just being told that this is it forever, my child is dead and she always will be, it was somewhat of a relief to have somebody tell me that and understand my pain so yes the grief gets different yes it transforms yes you do get on with everyday life unfortunately life goes on everything changes your whole world changes but just being reassured that how I felt was normal and okay and knowing that there is other people out there who do feel how I feel and probably always will feel that way. It was just very reassuring because we weren't getting that from anywhere. Everyone was very much, you know, stay positive. She wouldn't want you to be sad and all those annoying things that people say, trying to be helpful, but it's not. Um, Yeah, just to have somebody who, who understood and could sort of confirm with us, it's okay. Yes, it really sucks. I'm sorry this is happening and unfortunately you're always going to feel like this it yeah it was good to hear terrible but good to hear at the same time I think that's a really good point because I think yeah everyone's trying to be positive and upbeat and like oh you know in a few months you'll be okay or something and yeah, then when you don't yeah. feel okay in a few months you feel guilty for not blooming feeling okay and that's just another emotion on top of all the other rubbish stuff you're dealing with um well anyway we are out of time but thank you so much for coming on the podcast Jamie Lee and thank you for sharing River's story with us would you like to tell people where they can connect with you online yeah absolutely so just on Instagram um Jamie Lee Roy it's got two eyes J-A-I-M-I-E-L-E-E Roy fantastic I will put that link into the show notes thank you again for calling in all the way from Australia thank you so much for having (laughs) me this has been amazing thank you for listening to this episode of footprints on our hearts please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on itunes you can follow me on instagram at footprints on our hearts and twitter at skies footprints for detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for tommies please visit our website footprintsonourhearts.com <laughs>